we're going we're gonna to go through Colossians over the next few weeks, so if you could turn to Colossians, if anyone would uh, like a Bible, A, you should have brought your own, B, uh, there's a church Bible available probably in the chair in front of you, so do get that. But before we do, I'm just going to set a little bit of the scene for us. I've had, I love the, the, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Anyone else with me on this? Some of you, good. By the end of it, hopefully all of you will be. Good, good, good. Now, before we start, I'm going to make a few statements. So turn to Colossians 1, and uh, we'll come to the beautiful sea breeze of this first chapter in a moment. And we need a sea breeze right now, don't we, church? Jesus isn't enough for your salvation. (gasps) The gospel is insufficient to meet your needs. Anyone with me? No, I've lost everybody now. Uh, You need more than what you already know. Um, Your knowledge of spiritual reality is not enough. Amen? (laughs) No, not an amen to that. Uh, Your religion is like Tesco. And what you really need and what I can bring is a Tesco extra. You eat, I can't believe it's not butter on your toast. But I have the real butter for you to eat on your toast. Now, you'll know, many of you will know that the church at Colossae was beset with many, many problems, such as this. False teachers had got into the church and were making statements like that and creating havoc among the believers. Paul was writing from a Roman or an Ephesian prison in about the mid-60s. He'd never met the church at Colossae. He never founded it. Uh, but he's had this close contact with them now. And this is one of four prison letters, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon being the other three. And in fact, the letter to Philemon, who is the leader of the church at at Colossae, was written at the same time to the same church. And we see that, we discover that really in chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. In Philemon, Paul is addressing the issue of the runaway slave and how the runaway slave had become a Christian, a believer, and Paul was sending him back to Philemon, not as a a slave to be punished by the master, but as a reconciled brother in Christ. That's great, isn't it? Philemon went back knowing that he could be killed under Roman law. So there was a lot at stake, a lot going on in this church But Paul strongly encourages, in this personal letter to Philemon, he strongly encourages a biblical reconciliation. It's it's a staggering letter. We've just gone through that in our house group. But Colossians is an open letter to the church because Philemon, who is likely the house church leader, has allowed false teachers to come in and say that what the gospel you've heard is not enough. Christ is not enough. Let me ask a simple, straightforward question to you beloved people here this morning. 
Just a yes or no will suffice. No, just a yes will suffice. Is Christ enough? Excellent. So he's writing to correct or challenge these false teachers, which he does. These characters that had proclaimed Christ was not enough. They said that to be truly saved, you need Christ plus something else. And that something else was something that these false teachers said, we had, we had this knowledge and we can give it to you. And Paul is saying, no, Christ is sufficient all the way through from top to bottom. So we're going to read the first 14 verses of Colossians. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because you have, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that sprang from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. This gospel that has come to you in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wasn't that magnificent so having set the scene in this opening thanksgiving part of this letter did you notice from the reading that we've just had how Paul has now turned his guns towards the false teachers these opening verses are uh, they are just much more than religious flim-flam. Just the stuff that religious people say or the stuff that religious people write when they're trying to be nice. He has literally turned his theological guns on the false teachers. So here's what we observe from the text that we've just read. First, did you notice that it was Trinitarian? 
Verse 3, God the Father. Verse 4, Christ Jesus the Son. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit. He also employs the great virtue triad, faith, hope, and love. Verses 4 and 5. Did you notice how he opened the letter? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's already asserting his apostolic authority to the church. But in verse 7, did you see the contrast? He calls Epaphras our dear, beloved fellow servant. Number four, he reminds them that they have heard the gospel and it's already bearing fruit. He's telling them twice that the gospel they heard is already bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. Verse 6, Paul uses an exaggerated term. It's bearing fruit all over the world. In other words, everywhere that you go, the gospel is bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. And he also says in verse 10, it is bearing fruit in every good work. Every good work. Number five, Paul says in verse nine that they already have all of the spiritual wisdom and understanding they need. So when someone comes into the church and says, you don't have all of the wisdom yet, you don't have all of the understanding, you don't have all of the knowledge, Paul is saying, you already have it now, grow in that. It's an amazing counter-argument that he's already setting up here. And what he's doing is, he's not flattering the church, he's affirming how the gospel is already going to work in their lives. Number six, he says that they lack nothing, that they already have all the power for endurance and joy in Christ. They already have it. All of the riches of heaven are available to the believer right now. Paul is saying you lack nothing. Number seven, that God has rescued them from darkness to light. And he'll go on to explain what that might look like. And number eight, that redemption, forgiveness of sins, is already assured, already guaranteed, already given, already certain. Isn't this the most beautiful, exquisite way to demonstrate the gospel in action? We can't do any of this without the action of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We hear the word proclaimed and it sets us free and we, are, we find our sins have been forgiven. And so we live out that forgiveness. And guess what? By God's grace, it bears fruit all over the world. So Paul is setting the scene, so to speak, to launch a gospel counter-attack on the false teachers. And these false teachers come in two categories. They're either Jewish Christians who misunderstand that to be Christian, they thought you also had to adopt elements of the Mosaic law. Jesus plus. Or it was the Greek Christian false teachers who thought that you needed Jesus alongside all of the Greek philosophies. Jesus plus. Paul says no. Christ is sufficient for all of these things. Amen? So we see this as Paul goes through the letter. 
The thing that Paul is attacking here, many of you will have heard this, some of you may not have heard this, is it's an ancient, the earliest, oldest Christian heresy that plagued Paul. It plagued the church for 2,000 years, and it is still with us. It's the ancient heresy called Gnosticism, the Greek word gnosis, where we get our word knowledge. These people came in and claimed a secret knowledge. We have the key, the secret that no one else has. And Paul says, no, it is all yours already in Christ. These teachers, these false heretical teachers, reduced Jesus to one piece among many pieces, but not the whole to the margin. They put Jesus to the margins, not at the center. And next week, Rachel read from uh, verses 15 to 20, outstanding hymn to Christ where Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things hold together. All, 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 because he is sufficient. So we'll look at that next week that shows us how breathtakingly maximalist Jesus is to everything, everything. So to the Jewish false teachers, Jesus was just another part of the overall revelation. To the Greeks, he was just another interesting philosophical idea. To lots of people in our world today, Jesus is just another religious guru, one among many. Take your pick, put him on the shelf with all of the others. That is not the claim of Christ. He is not one among many. He is the firstborn. And that's not the first in origin. That's the first in authority and rank. He is the Son of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. You know, have any of you been to a Gothic cathedral lately? Anyone been to the one that burnt down in Paris a couple of years ago? Anyone? Can we get some passports for these guys, anyone? <laughs> in, in many Gothic cathedrals, they have a rose window. And they are staggeringly beautiful, amazing to have been created so long ago. But notice, the rose windows always have a center point, which is Christ, and everything radiates and emanates out of that center. That's the point of what uh, Paul is writing about here. Anyway, go and see a Gothic cathedral and see what I mean. I would have had a picture, but um, yeah, you wouldn't be able to see it very clearly, would you? So from that center, Paul says Christ is the center. We have Gnostic writings in our own day as well. Anybody read the Dan Brown books? The Da Vinci Code? Heard of them? Yeah. Thank goodness for that. We're going to have to get them library tickets as well. They, those stories, are based on Gnosticism, a secret ancient heresy. Interesting, isn't it? How wildly popular they, they are. How wildly rich Dan Brown became out of Gnosticism. Great, good storytelling. Read it if you want to, but be aware that this is how ancient heresies can come in. Did you know that Gnosticism pervades our secular culture today and that this threat is always with us? Claims to knowledge, 
Gnosticism is basically a claim to knowledge. Any claim to knowledge is a claim to power. And the powerful win. So if you can use any means necessary, you win. But it's always a power claim. Think about this. This is political Gnosticism. I'm going to share something that the former New Zealand Prime Minister said a few years ago. This is terrifying, by the way. And many of you would have read George Orwell's 1984, and it would be reminiscent of that. She said, this is Justine Ardern, that the government, my government, is the sole source of truth. <laughs> what? Gnosticism. How dare she say that? That's another way to power grab. It's, it's horrendous, isn't it? So that's political Gnosticism, and it's terrifying. Books claiming visits to heaven, that's religious Gnosticism. The New Testament forbids that. So it's a form of Gnosticism, secret knowledge. Look where I have been in my mystical imaginations. In, in church life as well, much end times speculation is almost always Gnostic in every single way. Always claims to knowledge that really can't be accessed by ordinary mortals like us. Are you an ordinary mortal? No, most of you are. Some of you are extraordinary mortals. Has anybody noticed as well our cultural madness around gender and sexuality and identity? Anyone? Well, let's consider something now, how this manifests itself in our world today. Remember when Jesus responds to the Pharisees about divorce. Matthew 19, verse 4. Jesus said to them, Have you not read that he who created, from the, uh, created them from the beginning made them male and female? That is a straightforward answer. The biblical position is male and female. Now consider the strange Gnostic ideas pervading our society and culture today. As plain as day, Jesus says, male and female. Now consider a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. Anyone got the Gospel of Thomas in your Bibles? No, it's the earliest Gnostic text that the church said no to when they were putting the canon of Scripture together. Don't read it. Yes, I'm coming to it. This is what they do, Carl. You've got to realize when it goes up, everyone just turns to the screen. So, all right, let's go. This is the Gnostic gospel. You'll understand what is going on when you think about our culture. When you make the two into one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, that is, to make the male and the female into a single one, so that the male will not be male and the female will not be female. And when you make eyes instead of an eye, and a hand instead of a hand, and a foot instead of a foot, an image instead of an image, then you will enter the kingdom of God. What? I mean, seriously, what? It's just utter Gnostic confusion. And the echo of that is seen today in our culture today, right? So our culture wars around gender, even race, critical race theory, is demonic. But these wars that we face in our culture have um, a hatred of the church at the heart of them. They hate Christ. And that's why they're rooted to these ancient Christian heresies that have never, ever gone away. 
So, I hope you see the, the danger and the reason why the church said no to the Gospel of Thomas. By the way, the Gospel of Thomas was late first century. The Apostle John was probably still alive when the Gospel of Thomas was put together. It literally describes what we're facing today. Up is down, boys becoming girls, left is right, light is dark. It is cultural totalitarianism. It's a power grab. And at the heart of it is the identity of human beings. It's why the devil said to Jesus in the wilderness, if you are the Son of God, the first thing to attack is the identity of the individual. It is obfuscation, disorientation, it is confusion. It is against the natural moral order of God's good creation. This is what our kids are being uh, faced with in schools today as we speak. Another one that's going to trigger some of you, <laughs> I say that with all love, of course. Um, anyone heard of George Orwell? Does anybody know his real name? That's his pen name. Does anyone know his real name? No, you should Google it and find out. It's really interesting. I didn't know he had, I thought that was his real name. I've got a couple of quotes from George now. Look at this. Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. It's what we're doing in our culture today. He says the really frightening thing about totalitarianism is... Not that it commits atrocities, but that it attacks the concept of objective truth. I heard a discussion that was recorded in an English school classroom from last week. It was recorded. The teacher was attacking two girls, and these two girls refused to acknowledge that another pupil was a cat. And so the teacher attacked these two brave young girls. This is where objective truth has been thrown out of the window. So, let's just say that again. The really frightening thing about totalitarianism is not that it commits atrocities, but that it, it attacks the concept of objective truth. It claims to control the past as well as the future. It's Gnosticism. Added to this, he says, we have now sunk to a depth. He's writing, I mean, 60-odd years ago. He saw something. And what he saw was what the prophet sees, which is the direction of a culture. The direction that a culture is going. He said, we've now sunk to a depth at which the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of any intelligent person. To say that some human being is not a cat is to restate the objective truth. Lord, have mercy on our culture and our society. So, this is the type of stuff Paul is addressing, and it's been with us ever since. So as I come into land now, from these opening remarks from Colossians, I love Colossians. Absolutely love it. Does that, what I've just read, those quotes, describe some elements of our culture today? It's frightening. I'm not even scratching the surface. 
I think it does. So Christianity then is not an escape from the world that is sinful, but a spiritual courage that interprets the world that we find ourselves in. That's the role of every single Bible-believing Christian. Can I get an amen? That's the role of every single Bible-believing Christian. Can I get an amen? Amen. Come on, that's better. We interpret this world by the revelation of Jesus Christ given to us in history and supremely through the Scriptures. Not in tearing our mind to pieces, but transforming it into uh, a right relationship with God. Not in making of us what we choose, but by becoming conformed to the image of the Son of God who loved us. Not attacking objective truth, but living in God's objective reality. What God says about reality is real. Not what the modern world invents and cooks up in its sun-addled mind. It's insane, some of the things that we have to listen to. It's not denying the obvious, but it is continually restating the obvious. So this short letter shows us that Jesus Christ is the light by which we see everything. He is the light, and he is sufficiently bright enough for us to see on the darkest of days. He is the knowledge that we need of God for salvation and all of life. Jesus Christ. For all of life. And that word all, next week we will see, becomes pivotal, foundational, crucial to the whole purpose of the gospel. So when Paul opens, as he does, with faith, hope and love, when he says that those in Christ are bearing fruit all over the world and in every good work and that believers in him have been filled with all knowledge and spiritual wisdom to endure and persevere in this life. When he says that we all have been given understanding by the Trinitarian God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, when he opens with these words, only a sin-demented person would deny that that is not enough for the Christian believer. And I think our world is demented by sin. You can pick any newspaper headline, any TV headline, over the last, I don't know, year. It's self-evident. And this is the world God has called us into. So it's not religious flim-flam. It is the gospel truth. Because Jesus Christ is all, and we all need him. Father, let your word be true, and every man a liar. All glory to Jesus Christ. Amen.